Hey folks, Pete Troopers with Starting Strength to give you an update on all available seminars and training camps that we have coming up. We have two seminars currently on the schedule. Wichita Falls will be December 6th through the 8th, and then we're heading over to Las Vegas on the weekend of February 7th through the 9th. For upcoming training camps, on November 16th, we'll be in Plantation, Florida for a squat and deadlift camp at Broward Barbell Center. Also on November 16th in Villa Park, California, we'll be hosting a nutrition camp at the Strength Co. Then over to Portland, Oregon on November 30th for a squat camp at Next Level Barbell. We'll have a squat and deadlift camp on December 7th in Moody's, Connecticut at Anino Strength. December 15th, we'll have an international camp covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift in Seoul, South Korea. Also on December 15th, we'll be back over to Woodmere for another squat and deadlift camp. Our last three camps currently on the list are going to be nutrition camps. So we'll be in San Diego on January 11th at Valen Strength, and back to Woodmere on January 26th, and then finally down to Houston on February 1st at Starting Strength Houston. For details and registration information, head over to startingstrength.com and check out all the events down the right-hand side of our homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Good Friday morning, afternoon, evening to you. Uh, glad to have you with us as usual. Uh, today we're going to do uh, our tried and true Q and A based program. We've gotten some decent questions in recently through various channels. But as always, we will start with the most interesting comments we always get every week on comments. comments. From, From the, the haters. haters. Sean McDonald says, Sean McDonald, that really narrows it down, doesn't it? How <laughs> I many hundreds of millions of Sean McDonald's are there in the world? This is just one guy in a sea of Sean McDonald's. <laughs> Mark Ripito is the man you want if you want to know how long it could take to take two minutes to learn something. That was artfully written, wasn't it? <laughs> God. All right. And Lemon Tree says, Rip is against anything other than his own opinions. And he gets so annoyed and worked up at anything that attacks his own beliefs. I love Rip. <laughs> But it's quite embarrassing how long he spends talking about other people's thoughts. Who gives a fuck? Well, you do, Lemon Tree. I mean, it's right there. Fascinating. Oh, I like this one. This is my favorite one. Joshua D'Souza says, <laughs> You look like a fat turd. <laughs> Bottom 1%. <laughs> As Joshua writes from the state jail. He's not even, Joshua's not clever enough to even get convicted of an actual felony. He's just, he's done a state jail crime. How do they get access to the internet in the state jail? They let inmates have. Or, smuggled in phones. Sm phone smuggled in. Yep. Could be, could be that. In their butt pocket. Right. 
<laughs> their butt pocket. And here's John Dwyer. I like the parts where the guests speak about themselves and how barbell training has helped them, but the incessant nudging about how stupid contemporary functional training has gotten to be stale. As always, please wear a lighter colored or more translucent shirt so we can see your nipples better. Thanks. He was talking like he was addressing that to Julia. Had to be. I think it was you. Yeah, I know. Let's 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 assume it's Julia. And that's it for comments Comment. from, from the, the haters. haters. Now, let's start our little Q and A. These things have come from all over the internet. Instagram, emails, where else? Speak up. Speak up. Uh, several other places. Uh, had an ad for a car on uh, Hemmings one time. I think one or two of these are from that. Uh, they're from all over the place. All right. All right. Gabe asks. Uh, he says, my name is Gabe. Got that out of the way. I'm looking for some thoughts, suggestions on a sciatic nerve issue. I have. I've had this. I've had this nerve issue for the last four years. The pain starts in my right butt cheek and shoots down my leg into the back of my knee, along with traveling up into my lower back. I've tried everything from massage therapy, stretching, foam roller, tens, etc. Some days it's a ten out of ten pain scale, and some days I hardly notice it. All right, let's just stop right there because this is the reason I wanted to address this. All right. Uh, first, sciatica is typically associated with piriformis uh, tightening, and the best way to do that is to have somebody that knows how to do this stick their elbow down into the hollow spot on your ass cheek and rub that thing real, real, real hard for 15, 20 seconds and actually mash on the piriformis to get the, get the thing to release a little bit. And that typically takes care of sciatic pain in, uh, you know, the, the period of time it takes to perform that massage. It's real, real painful. I assure you it's pain, more painful than the 10 out of 10 pain scale you're reporting that Gabe here is reporting on his, on his sciatica. Uh, it, it hurts real bad. I suggest bourbon before you get someone to do this. But let's look at this pain scale thing, okay? This is, this is terribly interesting. As is always the case with self-reported perceptions of pain or difficulty or anything like that. It's the same thing as RPE. It's completely unreliable. All right. 10 out of 10 pain means that you are drifting in and out of consciousness. Okay. In other words, you've already had the seizure and your central nervous system is shutting down from the sensory overload. You haven't had 10 out of 10 pain, uh, Gabe. That's, that's not what that is. 
I've had eight or nine level pain, and I know what it feels like. I was in the hospital after my knee surgery back in 94 and actually went into a convulsion. And I've, I've told this story on, on the podcast before. Uh, pain is, is uh, always overreported by people who have not uh, ever had uh, the level of pain that you only experience in a in a life or death setting or in you know post-op in some situations where the pain level's been poorly controlled. You're not walking around with 10 out of 10 pain. doesn't happen. You can't walk with 10 out of 10 pain. Uh, so, I've had sciatica, I've had bad sciatica, and bad sciatica where you're where you're limping and moaning and whining and shit is oh maybe five be considered five or six level pain, but it's not ten out of ten. You, you guys, you know, the 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 thing and I don't like to give doctors anything else to make fun of the general public about but when you go to the doctor and he says how bad is it hurting scale of one to ten and you say ten the doctor says to himself oh god damn another one of these all right so don't uh, don't 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 feed that all right learn to to appreciate the fact yeah we know your back hurts all right i know you got sciatica I know what it feels like. It's not 10 out of 10. But keep in mind that sciatica is very treatable. It's very treatable. You just have to find a therapist that knows how to do it. And the way to do it is to, the, the way I do it when I have to do, when I have to treat these things, I've got a little table in my middle room and I'll lay you down on the table and I'll put the, the bad side up. I'll bend the knee up create a little exposure of the glute and I'll stick my elbow down in that thing and I'll lean on it with my whole body weight and I'll rub my elbow in a circle for 10 or 15, 20 seconds as long as the patient will <laughs> can lay there and stand it because I'm telling you this hurts. But you get up and it's gone, right? Sciatica like that's very treatable. In fact, I, when I, whenever I have had sciatica, I typically go ahead and do my squat workout. It's gone by the end of the squat workout. Usually fixes it. So don't be, don't let sciatica cripple you, and certainly don't let sciatica make you say stupid things like it's ten out of ten pain because it's not. Okay. Now, Rip, I've deadlifted. Who's this? This is uh, Sean Bogart. Uh, I've deadlifted six years. No, I've deadlifted for years with no issues with my knees. I took some time off of lifting as I was training for a marathon. Now that I'm lifting again, I've noticed when I deadlift higher weights, my knees are buckling, caving in. Any thoughts on the issue? Yes, Sean, you're weak. You know why you're weak? Because you're training for a marathon. <laughs> marathon training makes you weak. All right? You know, retain strength. Training for a marathon, because marathons do not require strength. They just require that you not care that you've signed up for running 26 miles. Uh, one foot in front of the other. 26 miles. 
And I'll, I'll bet you didn't run it in under two hours either, did you? Uh, that That's all there is to that. Quit training for marathons and you quit being weak. Maybe you can be able to one day again soon keep your knees straight when you deadlift. Okay, here is, uh, this is Mike Palios. I'm, I'm reading these names because they put their names on them. I mean, if you, you send me an email, your whole name's on here, I want to get your credit for the question, right? They didn't write in anonymously. Anybody disagree with that policy? No. Good. Everybody, everybody thinks it's good? I think it's a good right. policy. All right, good. Uh, all right, he says he'd sent this by Twitter, but he'll give it a shot by email. He's 45. He's trained for a one-mile race on 12-31-19. He started starting strength last week. But he's running a race, a one-mile race, on New Year's Eve. All right. Uh, so he's, what, 10 weeks out. He says he's going to run 20 to 25 miles a week. Why? For a one-mile race. <laughs> he's going to run 20 to 25 miles a week. How should starting strength progress expectations be adjusted, if at all? <laughs> He's going to start training he's got, January 2nd. He's got, yeah. In other words, what you're going to do is you're going to start training, start his strength January the 2nd. Because if you are intending to run 25 miles a week from now, you can't train for strength while you're running 25 miles a week. You can't do this program anyway. Uh, that's bizarre. He has a 30-year history of running triathlon. Very little lifting outside of push-ups and pull-ups which, by the way, are not lifting, uh, Mike. Uh, never been particularly strong. It's, what a shock. And, but he can run forever. Well, Mike, uh, it, Mike, my friend, it just depends on what the hell you intended to do here. Uh, if you're going to, you want to get stronger, you have to understand that uh, stronger and 25 miles a week running are two mutually exclusive concepts unless you're particularly gifted. Now, now Fox, Fox is not normal, though. Fox, what did Fox do last time he was here? He pulled a set of, pulled a 585 set of five deadlifts, having run 25 miles that week. He's, he's a freak of nature. Yeah, but Mike, you're not Fox, okay? So, uh, so your question is, how should your progress expectations be adjusted, if at all? You should adjust your progress expectations to zero. And when you get serious about getting strong, you're going to need to spend several months not running and doing starting strength. And what you'll find is, is when you go back to running, you'll be just fine. You'll be just fine. Although I question the either intelligence or intent of a person who's running 25 miles a week in preparation for a one mile race. Uh, that's not particularly good planning either. So maybe you ought to look into this a little bit more. Okay. But thanks for the question, Mike. Okay. Now here is a guy by the name of Brian Walters who wants to know, he says, hi, Rip. Do you ever go fishing? Do you have a favorite fish? <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever go fishing. Uh, 
Brian. I've, I've got a place to fish, but I just don't go fishing. Uh, I catch, and I've, I've, I think I've mentioned this before, I catch exactly the same number of fish if I go fishing as if I don't go fishing. So I've decided that the time is better spent by not going fishing. And I don't have a favorite fish other than the, the one that I don't have to catch. I like salmon. Salmon's good. That's a, that's a favorite fish. I've never caught one because I can't catch fish. Arctic char is very good. You ever had Arctic char? I've never had it. Oh, shit, it's good. I'm not big, uh, big on fish. You don't like fish? Not, not big on fish. You don't like, no, nobody likes fish? No. Well, you people are just not as cosmopolitan as I am. <laughs> yes. Uh, I so enjoy being superior to other people. <laughs> To my point. <laughs> All right, here's actually a good question. John David Marr spells his name the same way that Bill Marr, the comedian, using the term loosely, uh, spells his. Any suggestions on adding more arm strength? I do fine in my squats when I do bench, deadlifts. My arms are very weak. I don't know how he would know that his arms are weak when he's doing deadlifts. I mean, John, do they hang on to the bar or not? My core, <laughs> core, chest, back, and abs have a lot of strength. My arms are weak. Suggestions try to strengthen arms. Be appreciated. Bought your book on Kindle. Great resource. 65. Been lifting light weights for about six months. How, and then he says, I've noticed a difference in my core, back, chest, and abs, lifting light weights. Work out with weights three times a week. Walk about a mile three days a week. Uh, well, all right, first thing I would suggest is that, that, John, you have not tried to get anything strong lifting light weights. So the first approach I would take to strengthening my arms would be to lift heavier weights because strength is a production of force and lifting light weights does not require much in the way of force production. That's why we call them light. If they're light, then you don't have to produce a lot of force to lift them. And if you're not producing a lot of force lifting the weights, then nothing has to adapt. And it's uh, an excellent way to stay exactly the same all the time is to lift light weights because they don't force anything to change. Uh, that having been said for uh, uh, older people, uh, and it, it, Dr. Sullivan up in, uh, uh, in Farmington Hills, Michigan, uh, runs his gym as essentially a geriatric practice, and he I don't even think he'd let you sign up his gym unless you're 55 or older. And he's he's got an interesting approach to some of these people that are old and frail in that he has them do standing barbell curls as one of the main lifts. Now, I have, you know, been critical of people that go to the gym and just do curls because that's stupid. Right. But for a 75 year old guy whose shoulders are so beat up that he can't press 
and he has a lot of trouble bench pressing too. I mean, we got to do something for the upper body, for arm strength. And standing barbell curls have have proven their usefulness as a multi-joint structural exercise in cases where better movement patterns are not available to the trainee. Uh, so now, now this is not John's case. John's just fucking around. He's lifting light weights and wonders why he's not strong. Well, that's why you're not strong, John. You're lifting light weights. If you want to get stronger, you have to get where you're lifting heavier weights. But keep in mind that a barbell curl is not always be laughed at. There are, there are certain instances where they can be very carefully applied to the right person's training and where a lot of benefits in terms of ab and back strength and, and leg strength, even for that matter, position holding strength, uh, is, uh, is benefited by doing a standing barbell curl. Uh, just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And, uh, I hope you understand I'm not advocating the addition of barbell curls to the basic novice program. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, those of you that, you know, you're going to say, go ahead and start typing, right? Mm-hmm. All right, Rip, I hope this finds you healthy, well, and thriving. Well, yes, Kenny, it does. I am just as fine as frog here. I am doing just well. I realize that you are real busy and don't mean to give you more to do, and I will understand if you don't have time to reply to me. Well, Kenny, here we are. I'm replying to you, so hurry up. All right, my brief story is that I am a 53-year-old male living in Scotland. I have uh, several problems with my health. I'm 5'9", 245, 250. Not a pretty sight. Don't always didn't always look like this. Need to turn things around somehow. Symptoms that I suffer are with following. All right, now here are several bullet points. Want you to take careful note of this pattern. All right, feel down in mood. Lethargy, low energy, low to no sex drive. Poor motivation. Head feels like it's full of cotton wool. Brain fog. Getting fat and weak. Sore joints. Doctor carried out various tests after and after blood tests they gave me the results below. They told me that I was getting old, accept it, and to lose weight. Bloods were taken and all are within normal range except the following hormones. FSH is high. Something's trying real hard. Luteinizing hormone is high. Something's trying real hard. Testosterone is low. Nine nanomoles per liter. Reference range is 9.4 to 31. Calculated free testosterone is 183. While the reference range is 245 to 785. See a problem? I asked for something that would boost my testosterone levels, and they gave me my gel sachets, which I had to rub on my skin. Were totally shit. Made no difference to me at all. Looking at what I have written, what do you think I should do? I don't feel ready for the scrap heap yet. I have a decent gym in my basement, but just don't have the energy and motivation to get down there and use it. All right. Several, several things here, Kenny. Uh, 
I don't know what your diet's like. I don't know how you're sleeping. I imagine you're not sleeping for shit. Because with this list of symptoms, goes goes bad sleep. All right, you're not sleeping well. I don't know what you're eating. All right, don't know how well you're eating. Don't know how well you're taking care of your diet. Don't know if you're getting enough protein. Didn't mention any of that. All right, but this is a classic presentation for testosterone replacement therapy. It's a classic presentation. There is no set of symptoms and blood work that you could have that more thoroughly indicate the need for testosterone replacement therapy than this. Now, they gave you some things to rub on your little skin, all right? Let me, let me point something out. If we are trying to get your serum testosterone levels up, we can only be sure of the dose we deliver to you if we inject it into your muscle belly. An intermuscular injection of testosterone is the only quantifiable way to administer a dose of testosterone. Skin treatments get rubbed off, get rubbed onto your wife, on the dog. You know, they, they absorb differently depending on how thick your skin is, various conditions on the surface of the skin. And if we're trying to make sure that we are delivering an actual dose of testosterone that's going to get you up where you need to be, and where you need to be is at the top of that reference range. Uh, you want it as high as you can get it, actually. If it goes above the reference range, it's not going to kill you. Uh, but a guy with that set of symptoms really is in a situation where he needs to have his testosterone increased. Uh, testosterone replacement therapy is an extremely beneficial approach for most men over the age of 45 or 50. Uh, in my opinion, I think everybody over the age of 45 or 50 needs testosterone replacement therapy if he intends to, to not complain about having low testosterone. All of those symptoms, that's low testosterone. It's classic presentation. And if the British Public Health Service is not capable of helping you out in an effective way, then perhaps you need to investigate alternate sources of testosterone. I don't know what the situation is for private TRT clinics in the UK. I hope that your bizarre little society over there has left open the possibility that, that such a business could exist. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the situation over there, but you need some testosterone. You need to figure out what you need to do to get it. Uh, you can, uh, Fuck around with this the rest of your life and slide down into a situation where you just don't care anymore. And if you don't mind not caring, then that's the way to go. Okay? But that's not what I'm going to do. All right? And if you want to feel better, then first thing I'd do is examine my diet, my sleep, get back to training, get those things out of the way because you have control over that. All right? You have control over your diet, your sleep, and your training. If you get that all squared away, 
The next thing I would suggest is to investigate testosterone replacement therapy. And you may have to do some extraordinary things to get it if they're not going to help you. But uh, injectable test is cheap. It's way cheaper than the derm approach to the thing. And I think that's something you ought to look into. Okay, dear Mark. This is dear Barrent. Dubois. Berlin Dubois. <laughs> I guess. I enjoyed listening to Star Trek Radio. It's an excellent program. I couldn't agree more. I recently finished episode 20. B-52s and the Strategic Air Command with Scott Davison. It's my favorite show to date. Hell, I've watched that three times. I just like listening to Scott's stories, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it like I did. It was, this was a fascinating discussion. As a counterpoint, have you heard uh, of or read uh, the book Among the Dead Cities by A.C. Grayling? I have not. I have not. So he says there's a wonderful discussion about, about the book put out by C-SPAN where Grayling and Christopher Hitchens discuss and debate the book and he gives the link to that. That will be in the uh, in the doobly do in the bottom down here. And it is much to do with the moral and ethical considerations of the Allied bombing campaign and the morality of bombing as a method of warfare in general. And he wants to know, do I enjoy historical nonfiction? If so, are there any other books, authors you would recommend? I I do read a few things, although I'm not going to be in a position to recommend anything because uh, it, this is not my specialty. Uh, I just read a, right in the middle of a book on the history of Area 51 that I find fascinating. Uh, although poorly edited. I can't remember the name of the author that wrote that. That was that thing Nick gave me. It's a fascinating book. Area 51 apparently as you know, Area 51's she pays some service to this aliens thing, but primarily Area 51 is a is a is a really a a place out in the middle of the desert in Nevada where they developed clandestine aircraft. And, uh, is it the Annie the, Jacobson? Yeah. Annie Jacobson book is, uh, is what that is. She really needs an, an editor that's like better than she is, <laughs> but a whole lot of good work went in this book. And, uh, it is, uh, uh, it's fascinating. It talks about the development of the U-2 and the A-12 and the SR-71. All of those projects took place out there in the middle of the desert. And uh, I'm fascinated with aircraft, but the, the uh, uh, books about that topic are very always very interesting. And she gets off into the aliens thing and stuff and doesn't really do a very good job with it. But, it's, but the, the information about the aircraft... Uh, are fascinating. Uh, Allied bombing during World War II. That's an interesting. That's an interesting topic. 
a lot of people uh, like to uh, immediately uh, jump to the conclusion that uh, saturation bombing and this this type of strategic bombing as opposed to tactical bombing is immoral in the case of war. Uh, I, that's an interesting, an interesting position to take. Uh, it really is. Uh, is it moral? Was it moral to wipe out Dresden and Leipzig in World War II with strategic bombing? The question that you would have to ask is why were we doing the strategic bombing of Leipzig and Dresden? And I think had Hitler not invaded Poland, it probably would not have been necessary for, you know, and, and all the subsequent misbehavior that took place on the part of the, of the German government in World War II. I think the saturation bombing of Leipzig and Dresden probably would not have been necessary. Uh, so the question would then become, was the method that presented itself as the most effective to deal with the larger geopolitical situation, a method that was a, a, a situation that was not our creation, uh, was the method that we found necessary to deal with that uh, moral or immoral. And outside the context of the bigger picture, I don't think that question is, is answerable. Whatever we did to bring that situation to a halt was moral because it needed to stop. Was the, in, in a similar, in a similar vein, was the firebombing of Tokyo by, uh, Curtis LeMay's bombing units, was that moral? Killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. The deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians is by itself obviously immoral. But whose fault was that? Had we not done it, and had Japan continued down the road, they were on, would the conclusion of that activity have been moral too? You know, uh, when governments go to war, they embroil their citizens in activities that their citizens don't necessarily choose to be embroiled in. Nonetheless, the situation is created. Uh, had we not bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, Japan would not have surrendered. And, uh, you know, and this has been kicked around, and my opinion is is not particularly valuable on this, but you did ask, <clears throat> you mentioned the morality of bombing as a method of warfare in general. Is it effective in ending the conflict? And whose side of the conflict is the moral side of the conflict. Those are terribly complicated questions. 
I understand. Things are not always cut and dried. But strategic bombing works. We discussed that with with Davison and his thoughts on it are, are interesting and relevant. And uh, I think that uh, whatever stops the war ultimately ends up being moral. And uh, we'll give that some more thought later. See if we can find somebody else to talk to about it, because that's an interesting question. Uh, I like uh, I like interesting questions like that that get us outside the context of training occasionally. Oh, this is interesting. P.S. I also listened to your discussion about trans athletes in episode one. I have a sister-in-law who is trans that I'm very close with, and I admit to a certain hesitation before I listen to a lie agreed upon, which was our title for that, that show. However, I found your discussion to be very informative, sensitive, and thoughtful. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that very much. That's uh, uh, Berlin Dubois' comments. Okay. Now, back to topical material here. Sasha Herfurt. Sasha Herfurt. Since we're doing French, today. you realize, of course, that my name is pronounced Ribdeau. <laughs> That's absolutely true. It's a French name. Really? French name. You ever notice how when you when you listen to NPR, National Public Radio, everybody with a Spanish surname has to have their Spanish surname pronounced with a Spanish accent. Oh, Incredibly thick. An incredibly thick, almost comical, uh, comical yeah. Spanish accent. Yeah. No one's name is Garcia <laughs> on National Public Radio. They are Garcia. <laughs> Garcia. So if your name is John Garcia or Brian Garcia, it's pronounced Brian Garcia. Now, I don't understand that reason for this pompous nonsense <laughs> this moralizing about the pronunciation of a foreign name I just hope that I get the chance to go on NPR <laughs> and insist that they pronounce my name Ribdeur wouldn't be funny Coach Ribdeur I just say you should just go with it now. All the we time. could just start, yeah, I'm going to start re-brand yourself. Rebrand myself. It's only rebranding, after all. <laughs> Wait, you People rebrand all the time. Wear, wear right? a beret. <laughs> yeah, wear a beret. <laughs> a cigarette with Maybe a, a cigarette ha- holder, you know. Ascot. Ascot. <laughs> right. I really like this version of you. Copy of, uh, copy of Rousseau on the... <laughs> on the table here for reverence purposes. Curly mustache. <laughs> little must, curly mustache. Curly mustache. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, man. All right. So, Sasha F. asks Can you go into detail about strength not being specific as opposed to skill? When I discuss strength training with friends, I find it difficult to argue that point. Common objections are that. Gymnastics or climbing require strength in a very specific pose. 
say the iron cross, or toe heel hooks, and such poses are better trained by adding or removing weight to said pose. <laughs> okay, Sasha, let's see if we can figure out a way to explain this. Uh, if we are talking about gymnastics or climbing that require hand strength, uh, I don't know of a better way to develop hand strength than to get your double overhand grip deadlift up to 405 for a set of five. And how do you get your deadlift up to 405 for a set of five? Well, previous to 405, you had to have done 400 for a set of five, and then 395 for a set of five, and then 390 for a set of five, and then 385 for a set of five, and then 380 for a set of five, and then 375 for a set of five, and prior to that, 370 for a set of five, and 365 for a set of five, and 360 for a set of five, and 355 for a set of five, and all the way back down to the day you started at 135 for a set of five with a double overhand grip, five pounds at a time. What happens to your grip strength? Holding onto a bar with a double overhand grip as you progress from 135 to 405. Your hands got stronger. Is it necessary for me to explain to you that hands that are stronger gripping a bar with a double overhand grip are also stronger in this position as well. Do you understand that strength? See, this is, this is the, the, the essence of the question is strength is not specific. A stronger hand is a stronger hand, no matter what position that hand is used in. In other words, it doesn't matter how you position the hand while it's getting stronger. If all of the muscle mass that you can call into the movement pattern is used in the exercise that makes it stronger, and the exercise is worked over a full range of motion with increasingly heavy weight, then the strength that is produced by that type of training is applicable in every situation where you use your hand. All right, it doesn't require that you be hanging off of a wall with increasingly heavier weights tied onto your ankles to build the strength. It's much more practical to build that strength with a barbell sitting on the floor that you pick up. And I understand all the considerations necessary for maintaining low body weight if you're a climber or a gymnast, okay? I understand all that shit. We're, we're talking about the process of getting stronger, okay? That's how you get stronger. You get stronger in the way that produces the most effective increase in strength, all right? And that will therefore be the most effective way to get stronger for any activity that requires that strength. Uh, in, in fact, it's the more general your approach to the acquisition of that strength, the more things get strong in you, 
than if you just try to mimic the, the one aspect of the use of the strength that you're going to encounter during the sport exposure, right? If all you do to get your hands strong is hang, then what about your hips and your legs and the rest of your back and shoulders and traps and all that other stuff that could be getting strong at the same time where you're leaving that out. So you're not being efficient in terms of your training time. All right. But what, what you have to understand is that a man that can deadlift 405 is stronger than a man that can deadlift 135 and strong all over. He's strong all over because a deadlift uses all the muscles. Therefore, everything got stronger. Stronger means force production. It doesn't mean force production in a certain pattern of application. It means the ability to produce more force against the external resistance. And whatever that external resistance is, the force production capacity is higher if you're stronger. Uh, I, I mean, I hope you understand this. You don't have to... This is what's wrong with functional training. It, it, it completely misses the point that strength is a general adaptation all over the body if it's acquired correctly. And if, if you are, if your deadlift goes from 135 to 405, everything on you got stronger and everything that is in your body that is now stronger is now capable of more force production. Doesn't matter what the, what the specifics of that application are. So how do we most effectively acquire strength? We acquire it not in the way that it looks like we're going to use it when we apply it. We acquire it in the way that's the most effective and efficient for the acquisition of the strength itself. Because that gets the job done much more efficiently and effectively than trying to analyze the terminal application of that strength and making the acquisition of the strength look just exactly like that. That's inefficient. And I hope you understand that. Uh, Iron Cross comes up. Iron Cross is a perfect example of an activity that applies strength to the specific application of that strength through what we call practice, all right? Now, a light guy, can a, can a lightweight guy, 130-pound gymnast, can a, is not going to have as much trouble displaying his strength in the iron cross position as a man that weighs 200 pounds, obviously. That's why gymnastics favors a light body weight. But what I'm telling you is that the bench press and the deadlift and the weighted chin would be the best ways to acquire strength for an iron cross. And then you practice the iron cross, applying that strength in the specific movement pattern, you're going to use it on the rings. So that's my position. I think if this, if this needs further elaboration, Sasha, let me know. We'll talk about it again. Okay. Oh, this goes over here. All right. Now coffee.
Isn't that a beautiful mug? We sell that on the store. These things are available at startingstrength.com. Get yours today. Also that t-shirt too. This t-shirt. You like this t-shirt? Isn't this cool? Black on black. Subtle. Understated. Sexy. Very, very cool. Very sexy, especially on me. Yet I notice these little lines in the shirt. How do I get rid of those? I, every time I look at these videos, I notice the lines. I'm sure. Let's see. Is that different? That's a little better. Does that look better yeah, or just different? Push Stick your nipples out. There you Stick go. out my nipples. Whoa. You've been working out? Why are they so hard? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's you, Bree. It might be. Could be. Well, I hope it's not me. It's not. I assure you, it's not, it's not you, Rusty. It's not you. Here's a few random questions from Instagram. What are your thoughts on the use of shock collars in horse and dog training? Like somehow those are equivalent. Horse training with a shock collar is an excellent way to get everybody killed. All right. So if you want everybody dead, you go right ahead and do that, okay? <laughs> dog training, they're very useful. Very, very useful. It doesn't take many times of shocking a dog with a shock collar before he understands that God doesn't want him doing that thing that he's doing. <laughs> oh, God. We had, had introduced Alfred to the shock collar because he got to where he was chasing cows. One time, man. Took one time. He went off chasing the cattle, and I turned that thing up to about a 11 <laughs> and shocked him, and he flipped over on his back. Flipped over on his back, yelled, screamed, cried. He howled pitifully and came running back because he didn't associate the shock with me. He associated the shock with the cows. He thought the cows had shocked him, and he wouldn't. He'd never set foot around a cow ever again. He was very impressionable. He learned very quickly. It took one time, one time, and I gladly shocked him because it was you know you can't have a cow, can't have a dog chasing cattle. Just can't can't have it. So uh, that worked real well for him. But <laughs> on a horse, you lost your mind. <laughs> Oh, my God. All right. Joseph Aguilar asks, will Rip ever return to his 80s shaggy-haired glory? Joe. Come on, man. Don't, you know, I don't need this shit. I don't need, I don't need you rubbing it in. Go away. All right. Hello, I've been tempting to run the novice program at least three times over the past few years. But I've been derailed each time, mainly due to life events which affect recovery. I'm 46 years old, 210, and pretty much intact, he says. And by that, I interpret that uh, his situation is such, as, such that the animal rescue people have not adopted him out of a shelter. 
But I seem to stall quickly when my squat hits 260-ish. Is there a point where I should just accept the fact that I'm not the intended demographic and look to some other type of program? No, Alexandro, you should accept the fact that you're not doing the fucking program correctly. Do the fucking program correctly. What's the name of the article? A clarification. Look at two articles. A clarification. And the first three questions. Read those two articles. Just two articles. You're you're not doing the program. That's all there is to it. Uh, I was curious. Sam... Yeah, so I was curious about your opinion of pre-workout supplements. I've read your article on supplementation. I know caffeine can be useful for lifting, but do you think the average lifter should get that through a pre-workout mix or just through taking caffeine pills? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, if you guys want to do a pre-workout drink, I think that's fine. There's some other stuff in it that might be beneficial to you. I think you need to try one or two or three, see which one works best for you. Uh, a lot of people have used coffee with sugar uh, for decades. That's been the pre-workout drink of choice. Uh, I use that coffee. Uh, what I do use you pulse? Uh, pulse from um, Mike's pulse. Matthews is pulse. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. I think it's fantastic. That's that's good stuff. Yeah. Pulse for our friend Mike Matthews at. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's the Legion? It's Legion supplements, and they're on. Amazon. I highly recommend that one. Pulse, a very good pre-workout drink. Uh, you know, Monsters, probably, you know, people do that. Uh, I don't understand why everybody likes Red Bull. Especially, Legion Athletics. Yeah, legionathletics.com yeah. or on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand why people do, like Red Bull. It tastes like cat piss. <laughs> I mean, it tastes like cat piss smells. Let me Let me... Clarify. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's uh, that obnoxious taurine or whatever's in that shit. That just, oh, God, I'd rather just be asleep. <laughs> Any of these drinks that are, you know, stimulant in nature, that have got some kind of caffeine in them from guarana or whatever source, uh, if, you, if you find, some people find they don't tolerate a bunch of shit like that in their stomach before they train. If that's you, take caffeine pills. They, you don't feel them at all. For they don't upset your stomach. They've got no effect on your stomach whatsoever. But uh, you know, and caffeine always takes twenty to thirty minutes to go in. Nothing is immediate with a caffeine supplementation. You have to take it uh, well in advance of the event because it takes a while for serum levels to come up out of your stomach. So make your make your plans to uh, to take whatever pre-workout stimulus you intend to use prior to the prior to the session, you know, time it for your warm-ups, whatever you need to do. But uh, I don't think there's any magic about a pre-workout. I think that if you like a pre-workout, that you ought to that you ought to use one. Uh, there's certainly nothing magic about any particular group of. Uh, uh, supplemented ingredients in a in a pre workout caffeine works pretty well. Coffee with sugar worked for decades. I don't like the way sugar tastes, but I don't like the way sweet stuff tastes really. But 
But, uh, uh, you know, yes, certainly give those a try. There's absolutely whatever helps you with your workout is what you need to do. So that's, uh, that's about all the good stuff we've got today. Um, those of your thoughtful questions you'd like to submit can be submitted to us through any of the avenues with which we communicate with you on social media. You can go to my uh, Facebook page, my personal Twitter page, send it into email at the store. It'll get to this desk right here. And here in a few more weeks, when we accumulate enough material to make a decent show, we'll do another Q&A. In the meantime, we thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time on Starting Strength Radio.